Welcome to If You Love This Planet. I'm Dr. Helen Caldicott, and in this program we talk about the greatest medical and environmental threats to all life, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power, global warming, ozone depletion, toxic pollution, deforestation, and many other social and political issues that relate to global well-being. So if you love this planet, keep listening. Hello and welcome to If You Love This Planet. My guest today is entrepreneur and inventor Jay Harmon. Jay is the CEO of a company called Pax Scientific who design more efficient industrial equipment such as fans, mixers and pumps based on Harmon's revolutionary concepts born of a lifelong fascination with natural fluid systems. Born and raised in Australia, Jay Harmon's love of nature began as a boy swimming in the ocean near his home. He began his career as a naturalist with the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife in Australia, but quickly demonstrated talents as an inventor. While still with the Australian government, he designed, built and licensed a set of crustacean measuring gauges as well as a range of hovercraft. At the same time, Harmon became a leading spokesperson for the fishing industry in southwest Australia. The culmination of Harmon's work in natural flow has been the development of the PAX Streamlining Principle, a guideline for translating nature's extraordinary efficiencies to industrial applications. Jay has recently completed a book on biomimicry, which means learning from nature to solve human challenges, due to be published by Doubleday Knopf in January 2013. Jay Harmon joins me now on the line from Hawaii. Welcome, Jay, to If You Love This Planet. Good morning. Good morning. I was just commenting on to you earlier. We both met years ago in the very early 1990s, I think 1990 at Byron Bay, where we attended this conference called the Hoffman Process, which was kind of one of these guru things where you find yourself. Anyway, it looks like you found yourself, and, and I sort of have progressed a little, I guess, from that time. So let's go back, Jay, um, to your childhood. Where did you grow up, and what were your experiences in growing up, particularly with swimming in the ocean? Well, I, uh, I grew up in... Um Perth on the west coast, and I uh, wasn't particularly uh, interested in school, so um, I used to uh, get out of class as much as I could and uh, go down to the beach and uh, went fishing and snorkeling and spearfishing and uh, just about anything I could do in the water, and uh, all day in class I would daydream about what I was going to do when I uh-huh. went to the water, so it uh, just became my entire life and focus. Isn't that interesting? And what sort of things did you observe as a child in the water that have sort of um, propelled you into the the life you have now? I really wanted to catch fish. So I, uh, I used a fishing line, and I wasn't particularly good, and there wasn't much equipment around in those days. This was in the early 60s. And uh, so when I was snorkeling, I thought it would be great if I could spear a fish. So I took a broomstick and sharpened the end, and I swam after fish, and of course, it was completely hopeless. And uh, But I evolved some strategies over some time, and 
I just became fascinated with how well fish swam compared to how well I could swim. And mm -hmm. uh, with very little effort, they could propel themselves at great speed. And, and I also saw cormorants swimming underwater. And those birds fly reasonably well, but they can swim faster than the prey they eat. And uh, so I got really fascinated by movement, if you like. And then over a period of time, I, I noticed while I was snorkeling and chasing fish around that if a wave came and I was about to be washed over some reef or rocks, I would grab hold of the seaweed to try and stabilize myself. And seaweeds are not that strong, so they break off fairly easily. But I also noticed that even in the wildest storms with huge wave surges, these seaweeds hang on just fine. So somehow or other, they were managing to resist the pressure of the water. Mm. And so I observed that over a very long time, and I daydreamed about it, and I tried to imagine what it was happening. And, uh, and I realized they're all changing their shape to a specific shape. Mm. And I've discovered since then that that is the path of least resistance in nature. And nature capitalizes on that shape in pretty much everything that it does and everything it designs. That's fascinating. So, okay, well, what, what were the first things that you invented and thought about then, Jay Harmon, based on nature's brilliance at design? Well, the, the first things, um, the shapes of these seaweeds were, I noticed, became the shapes of spirals and those spirals you see in seashells and in smoke rising off a flame and, and tornadoes and whirlpools and eddies. And I thought, wow, you know, this is also the shape that you see octopus tentacles roll up in and, and the way fish fins move are in these same kind of spiraling shapes. So I looked at how I could build those shapes into canoes that I was building at the time. I, I was into building um, canoes so that I could paddle out to deeper water and offshore reefs more easily. And so, and my canoes were pretty crude in the early days. They were usually made of pieces of corrugated iron that rolled up and hammered together at each end. And so I got my hammer out and then I started beating shapes into the canoe to match the swirling shapes that I saw. And lo and behold, the canoes were easier to paddle and went faster. So mm. then I started designing boats, little dinghies, and I built them out of um, marine ply, and, and I built these shapes into them. So they're weird and wonderful-looking things, but they actually went quite well. And, and subsequently, I... I started, the, you know, I was in the fisheries and wildlife department, spent uh, quite a few years at sea and became a captain with the, uh, of patrol boats and you know, got to study movement in nature in much more depth. And then I um, started designing boats for commercial applications and uh, produced a, a couple of series of boats and one called the Wild Thing. I made about 5,000 uh, units of them and uh, these were all fairly radically designed and they're all very organic in their shape and they had these swirling shapes in them and they turned out to be very efficient and uh, needed less fuel and less engine than uh, conventional designs. Describe the shape so we can picture it. Well, let's see. Um, if, you t if you take... Here's, an here's one way of looking at it. If you take a house brick 
and you put it in a river or on the beach long enough and you, you have it anchored in one place so it can't move. Nature doesn't like square shapes and straight lines. Mm. In fact, there is no such thing in nature as a straight line. So what it does is constantly try to evolve the most streamlined shapes. So it'll take that house brick and over a period of time, and it'll take quite a while, of course, it'll turn it into the shape of an egg. Now, a hen's egg is an optimum shape for streamlining, and you see that shape in all sorts of places in nature. Um, even a pear shape is, uh, is using that kind of geometry and that approach. So this um, boat is kind of pear-shaped or egg-shaped, and it just so happens that if you look at whales and dolphins and tuna, they're also sharing a lot of the geometric features of eggs. So that's what I built into uh, these wilding crafts. That's fascinating. And then, okay, so then what happened after that? Well, um, I, I sort of spent a bit of time around the world in different places, and uh, I did a lot of traveling, and uh, I actually went off on a spiritual search and uh, studied with Eastern mystics, and I studied comparative religion at um, college and uh, for several years. But I started um, ERG Australia, which is, eventually became Australia's largest technology company, and then I built a sailboat and sailed halfway around the world with a bunch of um, at-risk kids and sort of an outward-bound kind of program and um, just thought about things and looked at nature more and more. And then I invented a, where I reverse-engineered a whirlpool. If you imagine pulling the plug out of your bath mm. and you see that whirlpool going down, mm. well, that's also the shape of seaweed. So it's the shape that I'd been trying to get into all my designs up until then. And it wasn't until I actually froze a whirlpool that I could truly capture the really precise geometry of it. And once I had that, I was able to start making all sorts of devices because and this is a very interesting thing to me is that every life form on Earth goes through a liquid phase in its development. And because of that, it takes on the preferred geometry of liquid, of water when water's moving. And if you look at any movement in nature, it doesn't matter whether it's a gas or water or blood, or whatever it is, all movement in nature is moving in a spiraling shape. And you see it all the way from spiraling galaxies right down to particle decay and particle accelerators, the smallest things that scientists have ever looked at. The path of all movement in our universe is a spiraling shape. And it's exactly the same shape as you see in that whirlpool in your bathtub. And uh, our blood in our veins flows that way. And our veins themselves are shaped according to that. And when we breathe in and out of our trachea, it's exactly the same. And our eyelashes grow in those spirals and the cochlea of our ears and our skeletons grow that way. So it's everywhere and um, there really are no exceptions. And so once I had that reverse engineered whirlpool, I was able to start taking that shape and applying it to fans and propellers and pumps and just about anything you can imagine that humans build and use today that relate to the movement of fluids. So, you know, even the shape of an aircraft or a car or 
a pump or a, a wind turbine. If it's not built according to this fundamental principle that nature uses, then we're wasting energy. And uh, so I went to America because Australia, I love Australia. It's a wonderful country. And um, I think the best thing about Australia is uh, it's wonderful um, wilderness areas and so much of it that's uh, unspoiled. But there really wasn't any place for the type of work I was doing. No, so you, no I mean, entrepreneurs don't get funded in Australia, whereas in America they love you. Well, that's right. Uh, well, you know, you can be a mining entrepreneur or a farming entrepreneur in Australia, and that's mm. what Australia does extremely well. And uh, you can get funding for those kinds of activities if you've got a good plan. Yes, well, we're a third world country. We export raw material and import finished goods. So we really are yes. a third world country. Yeah, yes. go on. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm looking forward to that changing in the future because we're going to run out of raw materials at some mm. point. <clears throat> but in any event, I, I went to uh, California, which is the hotbed of uh, research in fluid dynamics. Yes. And that's the name of the science around this. And uh, because there are thousands of uh, scientists you know, focused on fluid dynamics. And uh, But I kind of met a brick wall because everybody thought I was nuts. And uh, I had some very derogatory comments uh, from different people. And, you know, I, I went and met with some of the most senior researchers in the country, you know, with the Office of Naval Research and different uh, places, different universities. And they all said, well, the shortest path between two points is a straight line. So if you're going to use the least energy getting between two points, you have to travel in a straight line. So that's why all our pipes and air conditioning ducts and everything else are straight. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm suggesting, no, you don't want to go in a straight line. You're going to have something travel further if it goes in a spiral. And intuitively, you'd think, well, that doesn't make sense. But when you look at nature, nature is always more efficient than anything humans do. If you look at the, harmon uh, the human uh, cardiovascular system, the heart and arterial system, there's not a straight line in there. 60,000 miles of plumbing inside our human body, not a single straight pipe, not a single straight anything in our universe. And in every case, nature is more efficient, more energy efficient and uses le less materials and makes stronger things for less materials than anything humans have ever done, so without how, exception. How did you convince them, Jay Harmon? <laughs> well, it, it was really quite depressing. And yeah. uh, I kept pounding the pavement for yeah. two or three years and uh, I wrote to uh, the CEOs of 21 Fortune 100 companies and I got audiences with 17 of them. Because I'd had the success with ERG Australia, it counted for something. You know, people thought, well, he must, he must not be totally nuts. And uh, so they gave me an audience and uh, they liked my story, but uh, they couldn't get their own engineers and scientists to, uh, to accept it as a possibility. So yeah. I had to start building my own devices. And, you know, I'm a naturalist. I'm not an engineer. But um, I got fiberglass and I got... Um, resin because they knew how to build boats and uh, started making fans and propellers and you know all sorts of mixers and pumps and things and and turbines and uh, then I went to uh, a couple of the top universities in the US and I employed kids straight out of college just graduated 
that didn't know enough to think that I was... Um, That's a good idea. <laughs> ...a Martian, so... <laughs> and uh, so, and they're great young people. i got three of them. They're really outstanding young people, and uh, they loved the story, and they went for it, and uh, they made my devices work. And suddenly, we had hundreds of prototypes in all these different areas, and they're all working extremely well. If you look at just air-moving fans, they use 18% of the world's electricity every year. And uh, most of them were designed before the 1970s. Yeah. And they're not very efficient. Yeah. You know, a typical bathroom fan is about 6% energy efficient. Really? When you look at the motor-fan combination. So 94% of all your energy is just being wasted. Right. So um, we built dozens of different fans for computers and bathrooms and you name it, air conditioners, and every single one of them was at least 20 to 30% more efficient and typically about half the sound. Wow. Nature is also very quiet unless it's mating or um, <laughs> trying to warn off a, a competitor. Nature is very keen on being quiet. It's a oh, that's good when you say mating, I'm reminded of, of when koalas mate, and they mate, make a hell of a noise all night. Uh-huh. The yeah, male and penguins, too. Oh, do yeah, the penguins yeah. make a noise? Right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I used to go camping on a place uh, where uh, there were penguins, and you could not sleep if you were there in mating season. <laughs> so I so, suppose uh, you patented all of these things, did you, Jay Harmon? Yes, I took out, uh, well, now about 250 patents uh, mm. around the world. And But, the, you know, the weird thing is that even with all these fans, we went to different fan-making companies, couldn't get buy-in because in America, everybody was outsourcing to China. And oh. they weren't no longer interested in innovation. Oh, And we couldn't go to China because China typically is, doesn't have a great track record with honouring patents, so we yeah. didn't want to um, be um, sort of taken over in that sense. So we're trying to sell to American companies, and they just we had a key. Um, they didn't have a lock for the key to fit. So we spent about six years trying to market fans, and um, we had some of the biggest companies in America even take licenses from us and paid millions of dollars in development fees and so forth to create fans, not a single one of them ended up commercialized. Oh and my we, now God. Have hundreds, we now have hundreds of fans that prove at least 25 to 30 percent, a third of um, the energy saved. And uh, they're still not in the market. They're still That's not being changing. produced. Well, it's just changing now. Um, yeah. A large company in America called Rubbermaid has uh, bought a um, company called Goody, and Goody wants to get into the hairdryer business. So they came to us, and we developed a hairdryer that dries hair a third faster, and it's a lot quieter and uses less energy. So that's just been released into the market. I believe they're going to sell 40000 a month or something in America. Um um, one of one of the biggest beverage companies in the world. I'm actually not allowed to say who it is. It's confidential. Coca Cola, but, uh, I bet. <laughs> I can't tell you. But, uh, they have lots of vending machines around the world. In fact, about 12 million of them, and they use a lot of energy. And uh, we've produced fans that save quite a bit of. 
of that energy. So that's something that's happening. And we're working with um, a, uh, a very progressive New Zealand company, a public company that makes electric motors and uh, Wellington um, fan and uh, Wellington motors, I should say. And they've, um, they've teamed up with us. So they're starting to produce product for particularly South America and Brazil of all places. So we're getting there little bit by little bit. And uh, you also, I, I'm fascinated. I'm interviewing Jay Harmon, incidentally, people. He's an entrepreneur, an inventor, as you can hear, and a CEO of a company called Pax Scientific. You also made a boat shaped like a duck. Yeah, that's right. Well, they, you know, if you look at how uh, swans and ducks and geese um, and other water, water birds um, propel themselves through the water, they're they're extremely efficient. I mean, nature is always about efficiency. So without much effort, they move along and they create very little in the way of wake. Mm. Wake, by the way, is wasted energy. When you see those waves going out from the boat, mm. that's all the energy you've paid for, you've put into the ocean more than rather than forward propulsion. So water birds are really good at that. So, um, so my boat designs incorporate that as well. And uh, that's particularly relevant for places in Africa, for instance, where a lot of traffic happens on rivers. There's not a lot of roads in many countries, so traffic is on rivers, but uh, the rivers are badly silted through erosion, so mm -hmm. they're shallow. And uh, so you need a shallow draft boat that doesn't create much wake. Well, this is an ideal boat for that. That's but, wonderful. Um, As you talk, you know, I live in a little fishing village, and... There's a swamp just beside the ocean of freshwater and reeds and there's a pair of swans and they've just produced three cygnets, you know, the ugly ducklings, little fluffy mm -hmm. grey things and I'm watching them grow. The sea eagles haven't grabbed them yet or the foxes. I'm watching them grow and they're about to grow this beautiful, elegant, long neck. We have black swans in Australia, for those who are listening, which are absolutely beautiful, aren't they, Jay? I love them. In fact, I did uh, some research on uh, black swans uh, when I was with the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife. And one location, I found um, a meeting place of swans. Uh, no one has ever explained it to me, and I never worked out why. But uh, I, I did a grid count, and there were over 3,200 swans oh. in this one area. It was spectacular. Oh, gorgeous. And when they fly, they're black. But when they fly, the undersurface of the wings is is white, so you have these elegant creatures with necks extended flying in sort of formation. Uh, so it's wonderful. Now, I see that you've just been in a, a documentary or two feature-length documentaries, including Harmony, which was a full-length documentary on sustainability, but sponsored by Prince Charles um, of Britain, who's the heir to the throne. Would you like to talk about that and about Prince Charles and where he stands on all of the sustainability, Jay Harmon? Prince Charles is my hero, let me tell you. And I tell you, for anybody into sustainability and a, a sustainable future, he is the king and a remarkable man. And he's been much maligned by media and, and not been tolerated well by some bits of uh, society but he this is a person that walks the walk and uh, remarkable um, visionary and I mean his, it's absolutely worth uh, looking at his story and what he actually does but he, he 
produced a, a movie, or he had a movie produced called Harmony, and it's a full-length documentary. It was just released in London by Robert Redford, in fact. And uh, he focused on sustainability and different stories around the world, and, and he, he's got a particular interest in biomimicry, so... Um, his uh, representatives asked if um, they could include my material in some interviews with me, and um, and they did, and that's um, worked out very well. And um, in fact, he produced a book as well called uh, Harmony, and uh, we're featured in that. And uh, that's that's been quite remarkably effective for us because when you're dealing with large corporations. Credibility is everything. How do you get attention? I mean, mm. there's a, a lot of new companies, a lot of entrepreneurs out there. How do you differentiate yourself from other people? And how do you get people to actually give you the time of day to listen to a radical idea? Well, when you get endorsements from Prince Charles, it makes a very, very big difference. And biomimicry now has that solid endorsement. So That's wonderful. Maybe I should interview him on my radio program. Do you know how I can get to him? I will. Uh, I can put you in touch with the people that um, uh, introduced him to me. That so would I'm, be I'm wonderful. I'm happy to do that. And, yes. and I'll do that for okay, you. Okay, so. Jay. I'd very much like to do that. Introduce him mm-hmm. to the American audience. Now, right. I want to move on to other fascinating stuff because I'm a biologist myself, and there are lovely things that you include in a book. Um, I think it's in a book, the shark's paintbrush. Why did you call a book The Shark's Paintbrush? Well, uh, this was the, uh, the publisher's Random House, um, or their Mark uh, Doubleday. Um, great people. I'm just so happy to have signed with them. Uh, they've got teams of people that do their artwork and their marketing and their designs and all this sort of thing, and, you know, what's going to capture attention. The book is about biomimicry generally, and for those who aren't, familiar with that. Biomimicry is a term that was coined not much more than 10 years ago by Janine Banyas, a wonderful author, and she's got a book called Biomimicry. And it's all about learning from nature. Nature is clean, green, and sustainable. It uh, does just fine without our influence. And if we as a species want to be clean, green, and sustainable, the best thing we can do is look to nature as mentor and teacher. And that is biomimicry. So um, so there are currently about 2,000 different biomimics in the world, scientists and entrepreneurs and inventors and naturalists that are discovering all sorts of amazing things in nature and adapting it to industry. So the book that I wrote is it's sort of about the business of biomimicry, but I'm personally not that interested in business. I do it because I need to. But um, So the book is much bigger in scope than just the business book. It really goes into who's doing what and what are the exciting things that are happening and what are the... And, I, and I've included a, a number of stories and anecdotes. And one of them is about shark skin. Now, generally speaking, engineers and boat builders and aircraft designers have always thought that if you want to make something as slippery as possible in the water or in the air, something that uh, has the minimum amount of drag, energy-consuming drag, then you need to have a very highly polished surface. If you think of America's Cup sailing boats, for instance, they're polished to 
to a mirror finish. Well, it so happens that if you look at nature, nature's worked out that that's not the solution at all. And in fact, um, if nature wants an animal to go really fast, it gives it a rough skin. A mm. dolphin, for instance, if you run your hand down a dolphin, it's very smooth. It's a nice, smooth skin. Um, but when the dolphin wants to go fast, it gets goosebumps, or in America, uh, chicken skin. Mm. So it gets all these little bumps on it, and that those little bumps actually cut the drag. And a shark is particularly good at this. And if you feel a shark skin, it's very rough. And in fact, uh, carpenters in the old days used to use shark skin as sandpaper. Oh, fancy. So, yeah, and there's these little things called denticles, dermal denticles that stick up out of the skin and they're made of the same material as our fingernails and there are millions of them and they're, they're rough. And as the water goes past, every one of those is rolling up the water in a tiny little whirlpool and those tiny little whirlpools act like ball bearings and it makes the shark able to uh, have far less drag. You know, normally, if you think of a ship going through the water, if you've got a 10,000-ton ship, that ship is likely dragging a lot of ocean with it, and it yes. can be 10,000 tons of ocean that's dragging with it. So your propeller is trying to move 20,000 tons rather than 10,000 tons. And the shark, or nature, is aware of this, so when that shark that one-ton shark is going through the water. It doesn't want to drag a ton of water with it. So these little denticles make sure that that doesn't happen. Isn't that fascinating? And so uh, some folks now have created a paint that is just like shark skin. And when you put it on a wall or on a surface, it's got this rough texture, and it's got a, a number of advantages. One is it cuts drag. Another one, which is really interesting, sharks don't get barnacles or seaweeds growing on them. And if you look at whales and so forth, the different parts of the animal, you'll start to see barnacles growing on them, just, um, just in little places. But a shark doesn't get any of that stuff. And the shark spends a lot of its time going fairly slowly in the water. So researchers said, well, why isn't material accumulating on this slow-moving shark? And they found that this rough surface prevents colonies of bacteria from building on the mm. skin. And for, bacteria, for barnacles and seaweeds to grow, they need to have those colonies of bacteria. So with this paint, they're finding that if they put it on uh, the walls in hospital wards, bacteria can't stick to it. Fancy So they that. need a lot less disinfectant. That's amazing. I can't believe it, Jay Harmon. So what happened is uh, the Doubleday folks, uh, very creative people, said, let's call this book bush, but the, paints, uh, the, the shark's paintbrush, paintbrush, in honor of that story, because uh, it's memorable and, uh, you know, hopefully the book stands out on a bookshelf. That's wonderful. Now, I'm interviewing Jay Harmon, who's, a, who's an entrepreneur and an inventor. Uh, okay, next question, um, next anecdote. Why does the bumblebee have a better have better aerodynamics than a seven four seven? Well, you know, it's a very interesting thing. There's not a single scientist on Earth that can explain why a bumblebee can even fly. Because they're so if big, you, aren't they? They're so heavy. Well, well, they are, and you know, those little wings. Those wings are beating at uh, six hundred times a second. Can you believe that? Mm. 
and uh, and they can beat something like a hundred million times in their lifetime. Now, what's happened is uh, the whole science of fluid dynamics, how things fly, how fluids move, all these sorts of things, has been the study of scientists for a hundred years. They say it's the hardest of all the scientists, sciences because it's um, it's almost a black art in some respects, and they've developed. Uh, formulas and equations for working out how fluids flow. And the basic form of equations are called the Navier-Stokes equations. And that's how we designed aircraft and, and boats and, and uh, drag-reduced um, surfaces on cars, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, if you apply the Navier-Stokes equations to a bumblebee, you can prove categorically that bumblebee cannot fly. The same with dolphins. If you apply Navier-Stokes equations to a dolphin, the dolphin can't swim at the speed it does. It's not possible. So something's wrong, obviously, with our science. Yeah. And um, so our science is good enough to build an aircraft that functions. It's not good enough to build an aircraft that uses the least amount of energy possible or the least amount of energy that nature manages to do. You know, there's a, there's a, um, a hummingbird that can fly right across the Gulf of Mexico on three grams of fuel. Hell's bells. Just unbelievable economies. So that bumblebee is benefiting from a number of things. One is the, the its surface is using, to some extent, the same strategy that uh, nature uses on a shark and a dolphin. On top of that, the shape of that bumblebee is built according to the geometry of a whirlpool. Hmm. And as I mentioned before, a whirlpool is the path of least resistance in nature. It's the optimum shape possible for reducing energy. Well, a 747 is not designed anything like the shape of a whirlpool, but it's the closest that we've come, I might add. So if we want to build a better aircraft, it really needs to look like a bumblebee. And it should also not have rigid wings. Nature doesn't build rigid wings on anything, except maybe a maple seed. You know, there are certain uh, seeds that come off trees called Samara. Mm. And uh, you're probably aware of that. There's a little seed with a wing sticking out. I, I am aware, and it, it circles as it falls to the ground. Exactly right. Spirals. Now, when, when people, um, when scientists look at those seeds, they find they're extremely efficient at flight as efficient as anything that scientists have ever created. Uh, but the, there's something quite interesting. When you look at anything in nature, pretty much every feature of it has a purpose. And you look at that Samara, it only has one wing. Well, it turns out that one wing is more efficient than two wings or three <laughs> wings or five that. wings. <laughs> and the other thing is that just the way the wing is built, it's got frayed ends on the extremities of the wing. Now, it looks like maybe that's a design fault or maybe it's just falling apart in the environment, but every Samara has that frayed end. Now, that frayed end actually cuts drag. So that Samara seed has more lift and less drag than any man-made wing, partly because of that frayed end, that tattered-looking end. The trailing edge of the wing the back uh, part of the wing, if you have a look at a Samara, has got a wave-like shape in it, not a straight line shape that 
man-made wings have. And that wave-like shape also cut drag. Um, if you look at the construction of a Samara seed, it's got these uh, longitudinal ribs in it. There's no frame, so it's a very, very thin uh, wing. And those longitudinal frames work on torsion. I probably shouldn't go too far down that track because it's going to get very sciencey and heady, but uh, just every part of that seed can teach us something about flight, and every part of a bumblebee can teach us something about flight. And so far, we haven't adapted those things into our flight. Okay, the next the next uh, issue to talk about is um, how can the design of a butterfly wing reduce the world's lighting energy bill? Well, uh, butterflies, uh, many butterflies and moths, and uh, peacocks, for instance, as well. You know, the, if you look at the, uh, these beautiful um, exotic tropical butterflies, or you see the beautiful spread on the male peacock when he's uh, when he's trying to impress the ladies, you see those wonderful colours. Gorgeous, gorgeous, iridescent. None of those wings or feathers have any pigment in them whatsoever. Is that so? They're not coloured. No, that's right. So what's happening is that the um, there are minute little structures in those wings and feathers that act like prisms, glass prisms that scatter the light so that you're seeing reflected light when you see that peacock strutting by. And... That means that um, you can copy that. And uh, there, there's a company called Qualcomm, for instance, that have worked out how to use those prismatic effects on computer screens and information screens so that now you don't need any electricity to light the screen to create the colors. You can change the pixels or the little dots that the screen is made up of. You can mm. change them electronically and then you can leave it. You don't have to put any more elect electricity in it. Really? And so when you're looking at that screen, all you're seeing is reflected light. So you've reduced the, the energy cost of that screen dramatically. You only need to apply electricity just momentarily to change the image. So if you've got a motion picture, when you're looking at uh, a movie, for instance, most of the screen is not moving. There might be a guy running across or a plane flying across the screen or somebody waving. They're the only pixels that are moving, so they're the only ones that need power to change if you've got one of these reflective screens. But if you had a reflective screen, you'd have to have light in the room to reflect from yes, the screen. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. You'd have to but have... most people, when they're looking at a screen, are in a lit room anyway, yes, so, or it's daylight. So... Uh, so you're not really spending money on lighting the screen. Okay, next. How can a seashell keep a microchip from overheating? <laughs> well, um, this, is a, this, is a, this is something that I specialize in. If you think of the, the greatest supercomputer in the universe that we're aware of, it's the human brain, which is still way ahead of any computer, any supercomputer humans have built. Not for some functions, but overall. And the human brain doesn't need cooling. We have no fans or heat sinks or refrigeration. Uh, and the brain does not heat up in our lifetimes. If it goes up more than three or four degrees, we'll then die. It's, We're dead. it's a fatal event. Yep. So, but our computers are using something, in America, are using something like 2 or 3% of the national energy, electrical energy, God. to cool them. 
That's amazing, right? just a cooler. Which is a huge amount of electricity, a huge amount of cost. And uh, so what's happening? Well, uh, if we look at a seashell, you, everybody's seen the spiraling seashells and the spiraling nautilus. You know, it's a classic shape that people yeah, use as beautiful. logos for all sorts of things. Yes. Beautiful shape. It's kind of one of those, you know, when you see a half nautilus, you just got to scratch your head. You know, you think, wow, that yeah. is just a remarkable piece of design. And, you know, your brain starts to say, well, who designed that? Or yes. how does that happen? You know, it's like, so it's almost a religious experience. Well, putting that aside, um, Seashells are all built to the same geometry as a whirlpool. Well, a whirlpool is the path of least resistance in nature as we explored. But a whirlpool is also an accelerator. If you put air into a whirlpool, like a tornado or a hurricane, it's actually something that accelerates. Mm. And when you accelerate air, the pressure drops. The pressure yeah. of the air drops. Yeah. And any physicist or engineer will tell you that when you drop the pressure, you drop the temperature. They're hand in hand. As soon as you accelerate air, you drop the temperature. Yeah. Now, these spiraling shapes are the optimum way to accelerate air. So it's the optimum way to reduce pressure and to drop temperature. So what we've done at PAX is designed an entirely novel refrigeration cycle that works on the way that nature does it. And nature does its cooling through these spirals. If you think about um, how the human body cools itself, it's through perspiration. We perspire through our skin pores. Well, it just so happens that if you look at a skin pore under an electron microscope, it's exactly the same shape as the whirlpool in your bathtub. It's true. It's a spiral. And the sweat gland is a spiral duct. It is exactly right. And so your sweat is spiraling out, and as it evaporates, it evaporates in a spiral, and that evaporation is a cooling process. So nature is really good at cooling things through evaporation. And, you know, people have uh, created uh, swamp coolers, a type of refrigeration that works on evaporation uh, for a long time. Um, and, you know, they're effective. They make the place fairly humid, so they're not the most desirable system, but they're, they're effective. But what we've done is we've created a, a new refrigeration system that um, works on that same principle without um, the humidity. And it's, it uses a lot less power than conventional systems, and it's fully inspired by spiraling seashells. That's wonderful. All right, this is the next one. <laughs> Sounds like a quiz test. How will fleas' knees and bees' shoulders help scientists formulate a near-perfect rubber? Well, uh, well, you know, um, there's some incredible statistics around uh, bees and fleas, um, and I don't have them off the top of my head, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of uh, give you some um, place-holding numbers. They're not going to be quite right, but they're, they're, they're not far off. A bee, as I mentioned before, flaps its wings about 100 million times in its lifetime, and it gets a, a huge amount of energy out of those uh, wing flappings uh, without wasting that energy. Well, it, it turns out that in a flea's knees, there's a type of rubber called resolin, and uh, CSIRO in Australia has uh, done a whole lot of research on resolin, 
and they've been able to replicate it and they've made now a near-perfect rubber and it's almost identical to the flea's knees rubber and the bee's wings rubber. And that rubber um, doesn't deteriorate um, through use. And it is able to store energy. If you put it under compression, it can store that energy and release something like 99% of that energy when the uh, rubber is released. So you're getting a, a huge boost in performance. And so if we can build that rubber into the shoes of athletes or into artificial heart valves and so forth, we're going to get really a much, much more efficient um, technology than we've been able to produce before. Goodness. And what, if cars drove with rubber wheels like that, they'd be like chitty, chitty, bang, bang? Well, you could, yeah. <laughs> there you go. But you could, uh, you, you could have a softer ride. Um, you could have um, less damage to your tyre. You could probably um, last longer. A tyre has to do two extraordinarily difficult things that are kind of opposed to each other. It has to have the minimum amount of drag so that you use the least amount of fuel when you're driving along, but then it has to have the maximum amount of drag when you put the brakes on. Yeah. So how do you get both of those two things at the same time? Yeah. Well, Resolin offers the opportunity to improve both of those. Does it really? Wow. So um, we've got about how many more minutes left? About 10 more minutes. Tell us some more stories, Jay. Well, here's one of my favorites. And, uh, you know, um, in America, there are a couple of thousand different products on the market um, that label themselves as sunblock or have some kind of sunblock activity. And because this is very important to Australians and many people in the world. Um, But the trouble with sunblock, most of the products on the market, uh, certainly in America, are not that effective because you have UVA and UVB. And some of these products will block one but not the other. And a lot of the products are made with chemicals that are absorbed through the skin and Scientists are starting to be quite concerned that they, in themselves, are toxic. Including nanoparticles. Uh, Right, exactly. And so um, there's a lot of concern about that. And Europe is regulating uh, more and more strictly. America hasn't got there yet. But it turns out that the best sunblock in the world, so far discovered, is hippopotamus sweat. Oh, but they're uh, nearly extinct. However, they came around uh, discovery. (laughs) So... So it turns out that just one drop of it, if you put it on your skin, it spreads over your body by itself. You don't have to apply it, So, which is kind of handy for a hippopotamus because it doesn't have hands (laughs) to do it. And uh, it's kind of uh, colored, a pinkish, uh, pinkish tanny color, so it gives you uh, probably a a slightly enhanced complexion. And uh, And it blocks out all UV. So what scientists are doing now is replicating it, synthesizing it, hopefully uh, giving it a better scent, like maybe coconut oil rather than an armpit. So uh, it's, it's going to really change um, the future of sunblocks. So wow. that's, um, that's one of my favorites. But pretty much anything you look at, I mean, seashells, um, mussels that we have in Italian restaurants that are so delicious, are held onto rocks and pilings by a glue and fibers that are incredibly strong. 
and they're stronger than any glue that humans have ever created. And in America, there's a very sore point over uh, Hurricane Katrina when that happened, that disaster happened. The federal government, of course, rushed help to the uh, surviving communities, and they built lots and lots of trailer homes. Uh, and these trailer homes, a lot of them couldn't be used because they were made with plywood that had a lot of formaldehyde and were outgassing, and this is a toxic material it's and you don't want to be living it's in it. It's a carcinogen. So, it's a carcinogen exactly. that causes so, cancer. So many hundreds and hundreds of these trailers were scrapped, brand new, never used. So a company now in, in the northwest of the United States has taken up the research uh, done by um, some brilliant scientists that uh, replicated this resin, and they've now uh, been able to synthesize it, and they're producing plywood that are stuck together with muscle resin. Huh. And it, it's stronger than conventional resin, and it doesn't outgas, and it's water-soluble when you're using it. Once it's set up, then it's completely um, watertight. It doesn't break down. So just everywhere you look in nature, every part of nature can teach us how to do what we're doing much, much better than we're doing it. You know, as you talk, Jay, I wonder why on earth scientists haven't cottoned on to this sort of theory years and years and years ago. It's as if we're better than nature. We've, we're, you know, we know what we're doing. We're smarter than anything in nature. The truth is nature created us and and one must develop humility, I think, to decide that we can learn from nature rather than exploit it. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, I've got to tell you, um, I was uh, dealing with a um, with um, a group of scientists at one stage, and uh, who hadn't understood biomimicry or hadn't even heard of it. I don't think. And I was um, presenting my case. And uh, this very, very senior uh, scientist, in fact, for one of the biggest companies in the world, uh, interrupted me at one point and he said, this is nonsense. This is ridiculous. You're wasting our time. He said, uh, technology shits on nature. You can't tell me that nature does better than we can. You know, nature doesn't build 747s. It doesn't build uh, submarines, you know. And uh, so what, what are your answer to that? You know, it's quite quite telling. But the tide is turning, and uh, I'm very happy to say that biomimicry now has the attention of a lot of people in the world, and, and especially um, since Prince Charles' endorsement, especially um, since some successes in the marketplace. Um, you know, one of the most successful carpet companies in the world is called Interface, and that company is completely biomimetic. They, they realize that carpets all over the world end up in landfill, and uh, they use lots of toxic materials. And so this company turned around, and um, its CEO, Ray Anderson, brilliant man, um, got the whole company focused on recycling and uh, using benign materials. He even did patterns on his carpet tiles that match um, forest litter. So they're very attractive tiles that um, you can lay any way you want. So you have far less offcuts. Uh, each batch is exactly the same as every other batch. So he's increased his profits dramatically and um, reduced his uh, waste by a huge degree. 
Look, it's all so exciting. It, it just almost takes my breath away, Jay. It's it's fantastic. And so is it, it's no wonder you weren't interested in anything they taught you at school. You wanted to get out in nature and learn from nature, not from these stupid things that they teach you in school to close up these beautiful little pure brains that are so ready to adapt and learn, you know, and you had one of those brains, didn't you? Well, I, I tell you, I just am grateful every single day for uh, the opportunities I get to be in nature. Nature is everything to mm. us. I mean, let's face it, when we go on vacation, where do we go? We go to nature. Yeah. We uh, we have flowers to celebrate everything. Um, it's nature. We have a flower, we have a plant in our office. You know, nature relaxes us, uh, inspires us. It's who we are, as you said. We're, we're evolved by nature. We're part of nature. Unfortunately, half the world's population now live in cities and have lost touch with nature. That's the problem. Um, much to the, um, I think, um, the, dis- you know, the disadvantage of humanity and yeah. our future. But um, that's coming back. The focus is back on nature. So very we'll much so. move from anthropocentricity to nature. That's what we need to do. Now, look, I want to thank you so much, Jay Harmon, and to remind you, not to forget to send me the contact details for Prince Charles so that I can interview him on this program, which I think would be fascinating for everyone. And I agree with you. Prince Charles is a pioneer, and he's so derided by the press, particularly the British press, and I suppose Murdoch leads that charge because he doesn't like um, British royalty at all. Um, And uh, it could be quite fascinating, but more than that, I've been absolutely fascinated by what you've had to say. I salute you for what you're doing, Jay, and I think you're revolutionary and you're helping to change the planet. And as we have to get more efficient with everything we do in terms of energy, you're one of the leaders and pioneers. And for that, I'm very grateful. Well, thank you so much, Alan. I very much enjoyed our time together and uh, I'll, I'll definitely send you Prince Charles contacts and uh, and good luck with your work you're doing fabulous work yourself and uh, you're iconic let me say <laughs> the work you've done about uh, radioactivity and that threat to humanity um, you're, you're, you are a hero to humanity. Well you know Jay I learned it in first year medical school in 1956 when I was 17 like you learnt your stuff swimming in the ocean so you know it's just very simple. You learn basic facts and that's it. And it, it alters and changes and and scripts your whole life. And that's what happened to me as it happened to you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Alan, and I appreciate it. Thank you, Jay. Bye-bye. My guest today on If You Love This Planet was inventor and entrepreneur Jay Harmon, who is the CEO of Pax Scientific. And you can look up Pax Scientific Uh, You can Google it. It's fascinating. I know that you are fascinated by this discussion today. Everyone would be, or if they weren't, should be. Um, So I invite you to listen next week to another fascinating program. I'm lining up a few as we speak. Um, And encourage you to visit our website at ifyoulovethisplanet.org to download previous interviews and to encourage your friends and relatives to get the show played on community stations and university stations throughout the country. Um, Maybe we can get on to NPR if anyone knows people at NPR. That would be terrific. I appreciate your listening. Um, I would appreciate too if you 
could feel free to donate towards our program, which is, I think, so important as there are so few independent uh, voices now on the media to teach people about the rudiments of science and medicine and, and nature and the like. And with those final words, farewell words, we'll be back with you next week. Bye for now. You've been listening to If You Love This Planet with Dr. Helen Caldicott. This program is broadcast on community radio across the United States, including our host station, KPFT Pacifica, Houston, Texas. This program is produced and engineered by Jazz Williams, co-produced by Scott Powell, and our publicity and outreach are coordinated by Amanda Bellerby. To listen to previous shows or to make a donation, go to our website, if you love this planet.org.